and welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Eamon Murtagh. And my name is Deb Grant. It's true. And on this week's show, we decide it's time to bring back the chill-out room. Yeah. And we talk about our love of gospel and how two staunch atheists have uh, managed to uh, find a God that doesn't exist in uh, a music (laughs) genre that we both love. Yes, and we talk to the ever-brilliant Joe Muggs, who makes us believe in ambient music and takes time to explain why whale songs and synth washes are actually the punk rock of the day. And sharing his phonographic memories with us is Croydon's finest, the dubstep Don himself, Plastician. So let's enter the relaxation pod and chill, man. Yes, please. Chill pod, like pod... Eamon Murta, my dear hungover special friend, uh, what goes around? Uh, well, apart from my enormous hangover, which I garnered last night playing a gospel gig to the sinners of Sacrilege. Bristol. And that was, it's a funny thing. One of my favourite things in the world is to, you know, you've got a big crowd of drunken people and they're all, they're all swaying away and getting into the soul music or whatever. And then you drop some gospel and they all suddenly get bored again. It's, it's a delightful thing mm. to watch because mm. obviously they don't have the belief, but they, they love playing the part and waving their hands around and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's all very good fun, uh, but I did have one too many glasses of the Holy Spirit. So I'm a little, little bit tender. But that leads me nicely into what I want to talk about. Because the other week I did a lovely little interview with uh, Joe Muggs about uh, ambient music and uh, all the pleasures therein of that particular genre. And one of the things we talked about, which uh, I really, it really brought back a lot of memories and a, and a lot of strong feelings. And I think you're going to like this. Mm-hmm. We talked about the old school chill out room. Because back in the day when you were raving, right, there was, you know, the main room was banging and everyone was going crazy in there. And then you had a chill out room and the chill out room was actually chill. Nowadays, it's just another room with maybe a different type of music, but it's just as banging. You know, it's the same wherever you go. Every floor is like basically trying to make you dance and go crazy. But back in the rave days, because the music was so intense, you had an actual chill-out room where weird things would happen, you know, and there would be seats, Deb. There would be seats for you to sit down on. Now you're talking. Exactly. exactly. See, I knew you'd like this. I knew you'd like this. So I'm starting a little campaign to bring back the chill-out room. I want, I want every club to have a little Deb-friendly area where there are fluffy cushions and, um, you know, uh, gentle lighting and maybe some nice ambient sounds, maybe a, a little bit of noodling, something, you know, maybe some maybe some live noodling on a computer or a synthesizer or something like that. But, you know, just just chilled and, and, and you know, not too loud. So you can have a chat yes. and you can sit down and have a drink. Because in those rooms way back when, I mean, obviously you ended up talking shit to people. <laughs> people talk shit to you. But, you know, you really did have long conversations and, and, and they were interesting. They were still part of that whole music night and, and, and influenced by the music and the sounds and the, and the people that were, that were there. But it was, um, it was just a little bit more cerebral. It seems now there's no off switch when you go to any of these places. Mm. Like if you go to Fanbury, room one, it's banging drum bass. Room two, it's banging techno. Room three, it's banging soul music, whatever. There's never anywhere anymore where you can actually just go and sit and chill out. 
Oh, listen, tell me about it. I remember at the beginning of lockdown when, you know, I was having a, a bit of an identity crisis. What is life? Who am I? Mm. And uh, we talked about uh, raving. And I said, Amy, can you, can you take me to rave? <laughs> and you said, you wouldn't like it. There's nowhere to sit down. And I thought, yeah. oh, yeah, shit. I'm going to put the kibosh on that idea. That's a but, good argument. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I love, like, I, I was about to say I love like DJing at festivals and stuff. That's not strictly true, but I do like the fact that there's always a green room where you can go and hang out. And that is where I will be because it's nice to sit down, but also because I really enjoy those nonsense conversations that you have with people. Like I'm thinking particularly about poor Wrong Tom, who was on the inaugural episode of this uh, podcast (laughs) and uh, the encounter I had with him. I think I'd met him once before and then uh, I bumped into him and I was a little bit worse for wear. I think I'd been dumped earlier that week by someone I was seeing. I'll tell you how long ago this was. And I was just like, it's you. And he was doing sound. And so he had access to this sort of sound green room. And I had him absolutely tortured for the entire evening, just drinking (laughs) all of the water that was reserved for people who are actually working at the festival and uh, just talking his ear off about yeah. God yeah, knows what. He had his ear surgically uh, put back on afterwards. <laughs> the little chew marks all around it. Oh, the poor man. But I just, that's, that's, that's the enjoyable thing about the chill out room. You yeah. can go and, you know, forge these, these special <laughs> uh, one night relationships with people, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, and yeah, just have conversations that you would, because in the context of a club, it's not like real life, is it? Or a festival. It's like a, a weird um, kind of lucid dream situation. Yeah. And th- this is the thing is like, you know, so I love these places. I, I, I love them. But, you know, sometimes you do, you do actually want to talk. Now I hate people who go to a gig, for example, and just talk all the time. Oh, that that is the people. worst in the world. So give them an area where they can just go and gas bag because it's better that way. You sit over there, you want to chat, go over there and chat, fine. You can chat over the music, whatever. That room is for people like you. But don't stand behind me talking all the way through craft work when I spent 75 quid in a ticket. Right? Still bitter. St- I'm still furious about it. <laughs> really. <laughs> like every time I think about a gig, uh, that is the, the nightmare scenario that pops into my head. But, um, you know... You- it is all part of the the whole thing, isn't it? And and this kind of um, because you're out of your ordinary context and you're in this you know play space, really, mm. you do talk to strangers. You do um, you know suddenly find some weird conversation from somewhere and have a really nice, interesting time getting to know someone. And mm. in most clubs nowadays, that's just not really possible because it's blaring everywhere. And it's furious and frantic. And although I love that, I like, I'm t- I, you know, as I've got older, I like to have a little dance and then I like a little rest. Yeah. <laughs> like, back in the day, I could go all night. Do you know what I mean? It'd be like I'd run a marathon in the morning. But mm. now the knees aren't what they were. I've worn them down. So I can do like maybe an hour tops, if you're probably not even that long. And then I do need to sit down and, and I'd like a little chat every now and again. Yeah. I'd like it. Bring back the chill out room. What? Just, I mean, why not just have a club that's just a chill out room? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, see, that's going too far. That's I going too far. That. No, I don't like that. No, no, because then, then the whole thing is, because what you need, you need a space where people can talk and then you need a space where you can run away from the people you're talking to because they're doing <laughs> your editing and you need to go and dance somewhere and the, where they can't talk because it's too loud. Mm. So it's all about equilibrium, balance. That's the key. Yeah, yeah. That would never work on a cruise. 
<laughs> That's a little, little tugboat behind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the me and you in the back going, oh, God, I hate this music. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> My favourite DJ in the whole wide world, apart from me, obviously, Deb Grant. How am, are you? I'm not your favourite DJ. Come off it. Well, in a, in a personal sense, let's say. Okay, favourite person then. You favorite can say favourite person. person, I'm right. not your favourite DJ. Well, I, I, I don't know, I think you've overblown yourself. <laughs> but I like you, that's what I'm saying. What's going on in your world? Okay, Deb Grant person who I like <laughs> acquaintance of mine yeah yeah that's a bit more authentic um well we, I have a habit on this podcast of getting into things that make me rage or at the very least mm. <laughs> make me raise my voice um and you know in keeping with the the theme for this episode I wanted to talk about something sort of more mellow and pleasant mm, yeah. and ambient um, we're both huge fans of gospel music. I know you have your yeah, night yeah, now yeah. in Bristol on Sundays, which is all gospel. And Praise we, the Lord. Indeed. And we've talked about, about that that moment when you drop a little bit of gospel into a set. Or my, oh God, one of my favorite things to do is to drop um, the spirits in it by um, mm. Paddy LaBelle into a set. It's got that amazing, I know it is. I'm not going to. Well, you know, when we, had, when we had Adele Berté on and she wrote that book called Why LaBelle Matters. Mm. And I've, I've since gone and just bought up all the LaBelle albums and she is right. Yes. Yeah, but I, lo- I love a little gospel moment in the middle of a set mm. or just straight up listening to gospel. I absolutely love it. It's just a strange thing, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, I'm I'm culturally Jewish. I'm a fair weather Jew. <laughs> I would say I'm, I'm, a- I'm culturally Christian. I'm a fair weather Catholic. <laughs> um, is there such thing as fair weather Catholicism? Not really. That's yeah. why I'm not a Catholic anymore. There you go. I'm not so sure. <laughs> and I'd say I'm like maybe 90% atheist, 10% agnostic. Um, but there's something about gospel music, isn't there, that just mm. makes me, whatever the opposite of suspend my disbelief, yeah, I suppose suspend my disbelief and uh, really get into it. I feel like it has, it still has that sort of rousing, spirited mm. impact on me. Yeah, you know, it sort of it, so- soothes, soothes my soul. What yeah. is that about? Why I, does gospel break, break through in that way? I to think, two heathens like us. To two heathens like us, indeed. <laughs> there was a great interview with um, Brian Eno on one of the many millions of documentaries that I've watched. Mm. And he was talking about sometimes it's great to hear someone do something really well and have a really good song or whatever. But sometimes it's just as important to watch someone absolutely loving and believing in what they're doing. Mm. And he, he was talking about Stevie Wonder. There's a great clip of him, a classic clip of him playing um, Superstition Live. And uh, if you actually, you watch it and you think, oh, that was fantastic. If you watch it and try and analyse it like musician was, you can see that it's a bit loose in places. Do you mm. know what I mean? It, it goes a little bit wonky here and there, but you don't even notice because the joy on his face and in his voice and in his body language, while he's doing that song, is palpable. And there's such a, a so much truth in what he's doing. It's just a pleasure to watch him. And I think gospel has that thing where, regardless of whether you or I believe in, in the God they're talking about, they believe it. And there's something fabulous about someone who has utter conviction in what they're doing. Mm. And when you've got that belief and you can bring all that emotion out, really honestly, it, it manages to touch all of the, the big notes for me where, it, you know, you can have absolute 
tub thumping, clapping, cheering, massive choir going rah, and that is gospel and wonderful. And you can have solo singer, maybe unaccompanied, nothing else, just giving the blues. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it can be transcendent. I love the music, and I, I really want it, but it comes with quite a lot of stigma, you know, because I guess everyone's had the doorstepping Jehovah's Witness or whatever and and not enjoyed that particular scenario Mm. so the idea of uh, gospel music to some is you know they're really put off by the idea of it but like last night when I played uh, people coming up to me going this is gospel this is gospel this is wow this is great do you know what I mean and really enjoy it because essentially it's soul and blues music exactly you know and it's just if you just take the name um, Jesus and swap it for lover or honey or whatever and it's the same stuff in a different different yeah. outfit but just a little bit more real yeah on my Jazz FM show The Late Lab where I get to play all of the weird shit mm. that I wouldn't get to play during the day I play loads of gospel like sometimes maybe 50% of the music is about God and Jesus and it's not I mean it wouldn't necessarily be the sort of soulful gospel more like really early sort of field recordings and close harmony gospel which I absolutely mm. love telling oh, yeah. like crazy old Old Testament stories the ones that are just like so you know really old like crackly yes. acetates that, yes. that you can barely hear them but there's something it's like a time machine you just yeah. stick it on you're like oh yeah. fantastic it's so good and on the subject of sort of ambience and like music that calms you down and stuff mm. um it's uh, mental health awareness week soon or it might have already passed by the time this episode goes out it's on the 9th of may and uh, i'm doing something for six music just talking about my own journey with uh, mental mm. health and all of that and sort of music that that uh, has helped me and one of the tracks which is 30 minutes long so i doubt i'm going to be able to play it on six <laughs> music it also might alienate quite a few people um yeah is, but you're, what the hell <laughs> is um pharaoh sanders the creator has a master plan it's just yeah. even though i like i say i would say i'm about 90% atheist 10% agnostic there is something about the way that track builds up and breaks down and it's not even just that you know the 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 lyrics are like the creator has a master plan peace and happiness for every man something that i don't believe but somehow mm. hearing someone say that is so it's unbelievably nice. comforting you know and it's amazing how as a non-believer something like that can still have the intended impact it's magical makes me want to believe in something Eamon gospel is definitely a feeling I tell you what last night things never change in the DJ world right so I was I was three hours deep in a in a pure gospel set last night this guy was dancing with his with his partner and and they they were loving it and I was waving across the floor and all that and it was all happy clappy and Aretha was singing and it was all good just to make sure that something's never changed he comes up to me and goes oh man I'm really enjoying the music I was like that's great great have you got any ABBA Oh God, <laughs> mate, mate! <laughs> praise the bloody Lord! Uh, see, shit like that is how you know that God, the Creator, does not have a master plan. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're so right. You're so right. And now it's the return of our Make Me Believe feature where we take a closer look at a specific genre of music and ask an expert to tell us why it's so brilliant. This week, we revel in our softer sides with the ever-brilliant Joe Muggs who makes us believe in ambient music.
I'm Joe Muggs and I was 16 in 1990, which was really uh, a, a magical, well, great time to be alive. Um, Acid House was kind of cresting, the wave was cresting. I was starting to go raving and, and buying techno records and all of that kind of things. But actually, Ambient, the, the explosion of the Orb and the KLF in particular and all the things surrounding them, all of the kind of ambient remixes of Balearic bands and, and, and things like that, were to me as revolutionary as anything else happening at the time. Ambient really was my punk rock, seeing the Orb on top of the Pops just playing space chess while their 40 minute single <laughs> played in the background. To me, that was the total rewriting the rules, total um, anything goes in a way that punk itself really hadn't been because it just meant forming another band. In 1990, Ambient just meant anything could happen, anything could be sampled. We started picking up Future South of London and Global Communication and the, the artificial intelligence records and Pete Namluke and um, all of these kind of 90s electronica stuff that often didn't you know, didn't adhere to any dance hall rules or didn't have any drums at all. It became, became an obsession. I mean, I, I, I wanted to know more about this and so I started to um, find out more about the, the background that led to this. I knew about psychedelic music, but going backwards from ambient music, I discovered things like Terry Riley, um, like um, Rainbow Dome music by Steve Hillage, like Pauline Oliveira, steep listening music, um, and, and then back further still to Debussy and, and, and Eric Satie, who, you know, Eric Satie, the, the composer, had expressly called his music wallpaper music long, long, long before Brian Eno ever came up with anything like that, you know. This guy's always had little fluffy clouds in Real chill-out rooms were few and far between, but they were, like, they, they were genuinely the most magical environment, rarely appreciated and um, is all too often forgotten now, is how much the chill-out room could bring the most bizarre sets of people together, get the most bizarre conversations going. Club UK would have Mixmaster Morris in the back room, uh, the Cool Town Arts, the huge squat venue in Brixton, had some incredible stuff. And I think what was most interesting was that, yes, you would hear ambient music as such, i.e., you know, arpeggios and whale noises and maybe some dub bass lines or whatever. Um, but again, as, as in what I fell in love with when I first heard the orb, absolutely anything could be incorporated into that. You know, Mixmaster Morris very famously would play Terry Riley, would play experimental uh, 20th century compositions um, just as much as he would ever play a global communications track or, 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 or whatever. You know, even if it was actually dirty mattresses that you were sitting on, um, rather than sparkly beanbags, as you kind of might maybe felt it was at the time, um, you would be perched next to random people. And unlike on the dance floor, you know, conversations would get sparked up. It's 
no exaggeration to say that you might find yourself sat in between um, a, a, a neuroscientist and a major drug importer. Probably didn't have any idea who these people were. And yet the conversation would kind of like spiral around on these various psychedelic tangents. Um, and then suddenly kind of four hours, because you could have a conversation for four hours. It, you know, you didn't know what time it was. You didn't know where you were. All you knew was that you were in a nice place with swirls of light and washes of sound and... Um, might very well be that you were talking absolute gibberish for four hours but then you know four hours into this gibberish even if those conversations even if you never found those people again nonetheless that thing did happen that conversation did happen that unexpected set of connections and information transfers and stuff did happen that ambition that idea though all of those kind of strange ideas uh, wafting around about connection and about um, accessing the subconscious and all these kind of things did really lead to some, some peculiar and wonderful stuff happening in those zones. Just as uh, rave became a little bit like old hat, so did um, ambient as such. And but there never stopped being experimental music that had no beats or that was immersive or that was long form. It just tended to move to the art galleries or to, you know, festivals like Sonar, the more sort of experimental electronica stuff. It maybe got called IDM. Gallery spaces tended to be where you were most likely to find it. Neoclassical music, post-classical music, as people kind of refer to it. This whole, like, Niels Fram, Erased Tapes, Johan Johansson type stuff with orchestras got people very, very interested in deep listening and lengthy listening. You had gaming and cinema got people into surround sound or headphone listening. The Arrival soundtrack was a, a particular one, I think, that I would call an ambient record by any other name. The Chernobyl soundtrack is incredible. It's, it's real use of scary, weird ambient sound. The wellness movement and much as people can laugh at goop and, and and, um, you know, uh, ladies steaming their underparts and all the rest of it. Um, it's, it's a genuine thing, a genuine kind of movement, mass movement globally within society to want stuff that is comforting and that makes us feel better and that maybe even is therapeutic in a genuine way. And so a return to new age music kind of, kind of came with that. And yeah, around the early to mid 2010s, um, you would get Peckham hipsters starting to reference new age music. People from grime and dubstep even were as well. Like the, the DMZ club encouraged people to go and listen with eyes closed. Burial. I think, I think actually burial is pivotal in making people think about ambience again because, you know, the way he is rain and fire and sounds and street sounds in his music. Jazz as well, like the, the whole kind of new British jazz generation um, have encouraged really deep listening and um, people like Shabaka Hutchins, like if you look at Shabaka's um, Instagram channel, there's an awful lot of him just playing Japanese flute and 
the whole kind of Giles Peterson world has a little kind of subset that is very conducive to the type of listening that gets people into ambient. It draws people towards listening to Alice Coltrane and Sun Ra, um, who, of course, were really, really important progenitors of ambient music. brings me of course to my ambient radio show um because uh talking about that exact topic with giles uh, ended up getting me a uh, a monthly show on worldwide fm and i try and join these dots on the show there are all of these threads that are drawing people into listening and i think increased i the, the rise of places like spirit land and listening bars and that kind of thing again gets people into this, this this deep listening idea so we just have to hope that someone somewhere will combine that with some oil wheels some bean bags and perhaps perhaps we can get back to the actual chill out room around we welcome one of the absolute dons of the dubstep scene dj producer and label head chris reed aka plastician hailing from dubstep's epicenter croydon in south london plastician has carved a fearsome reputation by playing dark air shifting tunes by the likes of zed bias wookie and horsepower productions he moved on from pirate radio station desire fm onto the soon-to-be-legal radio station Rinse FM and eventually got a residency on Radio 1. Chris has pioneered the sound that took root in the seminal club nights like Forward and Plastic People. Dubstep and its vocal offshoot Grime have created a vibrant scene that's brought together a wave of UK producers, MCs and DJs like Scream, Benga and Skepta and many more. And Plastician was right at the heart of things, creating bangers like Intensive Snare, Japan and Beg to Differ along the way. As the label head of Terror Rhythm Records, Plastician has continued to push the sound forward, working with global superstars like Snoop Dogg. And it is our pleasure to welcome a homegrown musical innovator like DJ Plastician to What Goes Around. Hello. Hello. What an intro. <laughs> there you uh, go, you see? Big you up. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Uh, that, that's a goer, is it? Excellent. Were there any red herrings in there? Or was that all 100% correct? I think it was pretty spot on. I'd say that like uh, there was one bit about uh, Grime being an offshoot of dubstep. And I'd say that... Uh, it's contentious. <laughs> Yeah, contentious. Potentially offshoots of the UK garage as yeah, opposed to off, an offshoot of each other. But other than that, pretty spot on. <laughs> well done, Nearly a 10 out of 10. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, I love those records anyway, and I had a great time wobbling my windows to them over the years. So thanks ever so much for coming on. I'd say one of the reasons I wanted to get you on was um, I've always liked the music and, and the things you've done, but I really enjoyed at the start of lockdown 
how you came out as this all-round entertainer for the masses with your, uh, your little live streams and pop quizzes. There was like a, a university challenge of dubstep one night, I remember seeing. It was great what, what yeah. you did there. You know, you really brought a lot of people together and helped them get through that time. It was, uh, yeah, it was a strange time. I think I just like felt that I needed to be in people's minds and, and in their faces, um, so to speak, with the streaming because my background... And some of the work that I've done in sort of like online music streaming, I figured that'd mm. be stupid of me to not use that skill to keep myself yeah. kind of like in the public eye a little bit while things were closed down. I don't think anyone expected uh, the lockdowns to be quite as long as they were. So my mm. initial plans were just like something to keep me busy for a couple of months. Um, mm. It ended up being over a year. That was a nice little community around a lot of the stuff that we were doing on Twitch and I, th- I think it helped as well. Uh, you know, like yeah, definitely, back, definitely. Open back up. Pretty sure that, that that helped with a lot of those early bookings back into the club, club circuit. <laughs> mm. It was nice as well because you, you kind of, first of all, you know, when you're reading the chat and stuff, you can see that it did matter to people, you know, and they really they really enjoyed having that outlet every week. Uh, but also, like, for, for me and, and others, dubstep is often seen as quite a, a cross-armed, standing at the back, looking a bit moody kind of music. And it was lovely to see the sort of uh, the mask come off, if you like. And I yeah. uh, tuned in one night and you were playing Talk Talk and Duran Duran and all sorts of things. <laughs> it was all going yeah, off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I've always had um, sort of an interest in music from that, that era from growing mm. up in the 80s myself. And uh, yeah, for years I used to do like a Christmas special on Rinse where I'd always play like 80s and disco sets and that's become like a revenue stream for me in the last maybe eight years or so. I've been taking quite a lot of disco bookings, so it's like something else I have in the locker. Mm. A lot of people, I think, knew knew that already, but um, yeah, that I think it might have opened people's eyes up a little bit more to like what my like, repertoire is beyond just playing like grime or dubstep or mm. like more recently like the wave and you know, my, I have quite a quite a broad musical taste. Uh, not all not all of it. Um, is stuff that I get to play out in clubs as often as I'd like but mm. when you're doing your own kind of like Twitch streaming or yeah you're, do what you like you're in charge just, yeah you, exactly and uh, it was just a nice opportunity for me to kind of keep myself on my toes so mm. to speak can we talk about Croydon because I feel like there's a history. Uh, the reason I ask this... Sounds, sounds very serious about it. Can we talk about Croydon? <laughs> I am serious. Um, it's a serious subject. It is. Because I feel like... I'm, I'm biased because my partner is from Croydon. And um, I feel like there's an unfair stigma attached to it as a place. Uh, which seems kind of completely um, arbitrary to me. Because it's all right. You know, it's like a just a normal British city with the high street and its own culture. You know, at one time there were a lot of cool records shops there and stuff but yeah and and you know I feel like people don't give it credit as the birthplace of this particular genre I mean do you like are you proudly from Croydon how do you feel about Croydon and do you feel like defensive when it comes to the stigma that's attached to it I feel like I probably like I think a lot of people listening that maybe come from Croydon will have mm. a similar relationship with it to to me is this almost a bit of a love-hate relationship mm. in that I'm very proud of a lot of things that that have come out of the town and a lot of the artists that have come through and you know mm. the, the, the things that a lot of people know about you know like the Brit school that mm. was attended by people like Adele and Katie B and Jamie Woon and you know God knows how many Katie Mellua and all these people that came out of the Brit school and then we've got Stormzy who mm. was born and mm. bred in, in Thornton Heath as was I and then obviously Dubstep was was kind of like born and founded out of a small record shop a community that was built 
out of the Big Apple Records shop that was in Surrey Street. It's not mm. there anymore. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of other good record shops. We had Wax City Music. We had another record shop called uh, Swag Records mm. in West Croydon, which is actually um, these days recognised as the birthplace of Tech House. So mm. a lot of <laughs> right. a lot of uh, a lot of like really important uh, musical movements have come out of Croydon. Um, yeah. So we had that, but unfortunately, I just think that like living here. I, I mean, I'm born here. I've lived here my entire life, so. I've seen the different phases, if you like. When I grew up, there's quite a lot of bars and nightclubs for people to kind of attend. Just it was a little bit cheap on the cheesy end of uh, like music. It was mm. it was a destination for people outside of Croydon to come. Mm. You know, we'd have like twenty odd thousand people in the town centre over the weekends. Um, it was absolutely insane when you look back at it, considering what it's like now. Um, you know, there's little to nothing for people to do here um, in the evenings apart from uh, Box Park. Mm. which is which is pretty good but you know it's it it lacks we lack a little bit of that um kind of character when it comes to our nightlife we you know have lost our identity a little bit or or fully really because i never really think that we embraced the identity that croydon had a lot of the venues didn't like uh the music that we were trying to put in in the bars that would let us run our own events and Mm. things like dress codes and that were always a little bit Mm. uh problematic you're trying to like create a vibe and create an atmosphere for people to come and enjoy some music and telling them they've got to put shoes and a collar on. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's no good, is it? Kind of, no, especially for the kind of music that we were doing, you know, we were kind of pushed out to Shoreditch to run or like play at events um, at Plastic People. Mm. Like, it's like Forward and then DMZ in Brixton. Uh, I ran a night myself in Croydon called Filthy Dub, which lasted two events before we had to move that to Brixton. Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. It just wasn't welcomed. I don't think it was uh, taken seriously by the councils, and um, yeah, you know, they kind of reached out to try and like make amends. But we don't have anywhere to house a proper music event in Croydon, really, beyond the Box Park, which is more of the like more leaning towards the more mainstream yeah. artists. Yeah. That might and there was get, there was the promise of Westfield, and obviously <laughs> that all kind of yeah, that's gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's I was, amazing. I was expecting that. Yeah. Yeah, really, yeah. That, that it was going to be yeah. have the kibosh put I, on it. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't see why any billionaire would invest in retail at this time. Yeah, um, yeah, it does seem. And this bad. was years ago. I'm it, sure there's interviews online where I said it. That there's no <laughs> way that's going to happen. If only you could have put money down on it. I suppose it's I know, quite it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm sure you weren't alone in that. But it, that's just so interesting that it's the, the you know a plastic people or whatever could have been in Croydon, but it was almost like the council or whoever was campaigning for shirt and shoes just made sure that didn't happen what a shame yeah I think it's a problem Uh, and I think it still is you know like I think Mm. that like I said the council have kind of had meetings with people like myself down the years in recent times and I think they made a massive mistake with like the regeneration of the Fairfield um, halls as an example it's like the big uh, sort of like concert hall if you like it underwent like a 35 million pound, maybe more, I can't remember, uh, like um, refurbishment. Mm. But, you know, they put the old seats back in there. It's it, You go in there and it just looks like it's had a lick of paint. Mm. And little things yeah. like I went to visit the site while it was still being built and they walked me around the space that they had intended to design for like late night kind of like electronic music events. And the space itself was like a good size. I wasn't personally that interested in it being attached to Fairfield Halls I thought you know it'd be better off just like 
building it in a car park in the town centre or something like that. They, yeah. I, I think they miss the point. Like people that go to the sort of music events that that myself and people that are like minded musically go to, they don't. It doesn't need to be in a concert hall. And uh, yeah. I remember visiting that that site and. They showed me the space, and I was I was familiar with it because I'd actually done a gig in that space many years ago. Um, and I asked them where the toilets were, and they said the toilets are across the foyer. <laughs> so I thought the thought of like people going to an all night rave and having to walk through a brightly lit foyer past people who are on their yeah, way out. That's going to be horrible, isn't it? <laughs> people aren't going to go and do that. That's horrendous. Yeah. Who's designed yeah. this? And yeah. these were the sort of things that went went across the entire regeneration of that platform and space. And I'm not surprised that it's fallen on its face since it reopened because it's not fit for purpose. And they've spent mm. all the taxpayers' money to do that. And we've got nothing to show for it. Um, and Croydon's still without any real um, alternative music venues. That is such a shame because, you know, what you guys did, you know, the whole the whole dubstep and, and garage and grime thing, that, that has become so enormous. You know, it has become a worldwide phenomenon. And it's something that really did start in, pretty much in that little shop, Big Apple Records. It, 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 it stuns me that, like, a, a local council can't see the worth and the value of reinvesting in that rather than, you know just going down a very traditional route of saying, let's have a nice shiny village hall where, where we can get a nice bit of opera on or something, you know? Exactly. I think they're completely out of touch. I think that um, there are a couple of people I met, actually, to be fair, that, that seemed a little bit more in touch with what like the history of this sound was and how it happened. And But the majority of people who work in the council are, you know, in, in their mid to late 50s, um, mm. old white guys that don't attend... Or would understand why anyone would attend. And I think that like the stigmas attached to clubbing as well. Like for people who don't go clubbing, you see it in like the government yeah. and their their uh, attitudes towards a lot of this is oh, it's just for people who want to take drugs or get too drunk, and <laughs> that's not the case at all. Mm. And I think until like there are people in places of power who understand what it means and how important it is for the culture, uh, mm. we'll never really see change. And I think that. It's almost too late now because we've overdeveloped all of our main city centres to the point that everywhere has a residential above it, below mm, it, beside yeah. it, on top of yeah. it. Like, where are you even going to put a venue that yeah. can yeah, host so loud true. music into the early hours? This, and I think this is the thing with like the Croydon the failure of the Westfield is this. This is now a space available to them mm. where if they really did want to do something, then develop the town centre because you could put a club. A venue inside there you could put a late night music venue there you could put you know you could you could dump a Brixton Academy bang in the middle of that shopping centre I don't think anyone would miss much of the Whitgift Centre if, if it was like <laughs> I've been um, there and I can yeah attest yeah, it'd be nice to have another Brixton Academy as well yeah exactly and and you know it's one of the few spaces left in this massive town that has a you know like a population bigger than the city of Leeds mm. that has nowhere for people to go and listen to music yeah. uh, late night and that's literally the only space that we have left that won't come into problems with residential groans and complaints. So I'd be interested to see if and when anything does. I think Croydon is uh, the London borough of culture next year. So mm. if they're going to do it, they want to yeah, do it. Yeah, let's do it now. They should, they should get some culture in then. <laughs> Surely <laughs> exactly. that's the thing they need. Yeah. 
Can we talk a little bit about about the birth of all that culture? Because, you know, it seemed to me uh, you're describing the kind of cheesy end of of club culture that was going on around the the town at that time. And that rings true to me as well. I can remember, you know, when I was uh, starting off raving, our town was a bit like that. And it was just suddenly we had this new thing. And the buzz and the excitement was was just everyone was absolutely charged by it how did those those early days of dubstep i mean it's almost like no one knew what they were doing and people were making making the music on playstations and stuff tell us a little about those early days when you first started to hear that sound come out so i think a lot of us well all of us were really into like uk garage music some of the older Hmm. heads have probably like grown up around like jungle and drum and bass um I personally kind of miss that. I don't have any older siblings, so I, I, I didn't really get couldn't get my head around jungle and drum and bass as much. It wasn't until I heard UK Garage on pirate radio when I was about seventeen, um, and I think a lot of people my age similarly got into that sound through listening to pirate radio a lot. Um, not many people listened to commercial radio, for, from mm. my experience. Of so people at my age had kind of gotten into music that they were hearing on tape packs from their older brothers and sisters. And a lot of that was jungle and drum and bass, and that took them to listening to pirate radio. And then what was being played on pirate radio over time shifted from drum and bass and jungle into this early sort of like two-step garage. And then it started to become a bit darker. So you'd have like garage with MCs on it. And I think like most of us involved in the early days of dubstep were garage DJs who maybe performed with MCs. So I met mm. people like Scream, Benga, Chef, on the kind of like Croydon house party circuit mm. where you would turn up with your records, you'd play in the house party and you'd meet other DJs and MCs. And it was almost like a little community people that, you know, before we had the internet and stuff like that, you'd just bump mm. into them in the record shop in the week, be like, oh, that that's that guy who was playing at like Jamie's house party last week or, you know. And, I love a good house someone, party, man. Yeah, so that was a lot of that, and that just evolved over time from just we were all DJs to, you know, at that time, getting your hands on production equipment was you needed to get into a big studio and do it. Um, there wasn't there wasn't the software option that we mm. have now. So it wasn't until around maybe 2000, 2001, where we had things like Music 2000 on PlayStation where you could kind of mess about, make very basic beats nothing to be honest with you like it's it's quite like well documented that people were doing that but not nothing that any of us were making on playstation uh, is like recognizable as a released piece of music now that Mm. i can point at and go that was made on playstation like quite a lot of that was pretty bad but it did give us an opportunity to figure out how to like build music in patterns and make it stuff that Mm. sounded at least like it was structured the same way a lot of the garage records we were playing were structured and then when uh fruity loops came about uh you could could kind of download that from all of the like you know like the cracked software uh things like limewire and napster where you could download these files and install this software on your computer for no money and have a go and in a very drag and drop fashion that was even easier than doing it on the playstation was um and once people got their hands on that we all kind of figured out how to make what we thought was garage but it wasn't very good garage and it was darker and it just Mm. began to sound like something else and that was like the beginning of dubstep really that must have been such an exciting time when you had this new thing and literally you know there must have been like i don't know 20 30 of you doing it maybe and but it was nowhere else in the world and then suddenly 
unlike most forms of music, for me, dubstep is like a real pivotal scene because it's one of the first uh, new forms of music that actually broke at the same time as the internet came alive. And so mm. dubstep went from Croydon. Suddenly it was, you know, you're getting producers in America and Australia, all around Europe, you know. I mean, dubstep forum, I used to be on that most yeah. nights. And, uh, you know, you'd for people from Serbia and stuff. And it just suddenly went worldwide like within a year, it was just huge. And, and it, it really isn't a commercial sound. It really isn't the kind of thing... I mean, I don't think it got much radio play on, on, no, I think on any right. of the big stations. I think it was like... So it felt like it was a lot longer for those of us that were involved early. Like, we were playing, like, you know, for, the first forward event was uh, the tail end of 2001, if I remember rightly. I didn't mm. play it myself until 2003. But the real sort of, like turning point for dubstep was around 2006 that's when it started to filter outside of the small events that we were all playing for years and the general feeling around most of us at that time was that it was never going to happen for us and you know you could start to see a lot of the djs taking like garage bookings again and stuff like that Mm. and then a lot of the sort of nights that were happening outside of london were just like starting to wind down and then 2006 DMZ's birth, birthday party, I think the week leading up to that, Marianne Hobbs did a special on her show. I'd literally just ended my uh, time at the BBC around the same time as all this was going on as well because uh, the feeling was that the sound wasn't popular enough and they felt that yeah. what Marianne, Marianne playing bits on her show was, was more than enough to cater for the small audience that cared for that music mm. at the time so I was I, my time at the BBC was coming to an end and the Marianne did this dubstep wars special and off the back of that the interest in the DMZ birthday party that followed it a couple of weeks later was unbelievable in terms of like you know DMZ had been going for a year they'd maybe have 150 to 200 people turn up you know you just walk straight in never a queue to get in you knew everyone in there and then mm. the day of that birthday party happened and there was about, I remember arriving and there was about four or 500 people outside queuing mm-hmm. to get in. And it was like, what happened? Like this, <laughs> we'd ne- it literally happened overnight. We did never, we'd never seen that many people turn up for this kind of event ever. And then off the back of that, within a few weeks and months, it was like, you've got gigs on Wednesday, Thursday in Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, wow. Bristol, Birmingham, you name it, you're playing out in every city in, in the UK. Over a weekend, you'd have like four or five gigs. Like you did not wow. stop. And that went on for about two or three years before like things started to really cross over into America. And I'd say around 2009, 10 was when the real boom happened in America. And, you know, it went fully, it became almost so big that it was like a meme. You know, people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, <laughs> everyone and their, their aunties had a, had knew what dubstep was, but they're, they're a, perceptions of it were very different depending on yeah what, yeah it's what all that got honking with. stuff where was the sub bass it all went it all it, went noisy and stopped being subtle it was a bit of a shame exactly yeah yeah um can you talk a little bit about your time at the bbc that's interesting that your time there sort of came to an end literally just as everything went completely stratospheric with the dubstep stuff how did you get into radio and what was that uh what was the show you had all about so i've been on pirate radio um since uh, probably like 2001 Mm. um and then i think my if i remember rightly my first shows in the bbc were like 
maybe the tail end of 2005 maybe or the beginning of 2006 I'd have to go back and look but I was on I was on for a year and a half um I think my initial contract was only like six months so mm. it was like a rolling contract for what was called the residency and mm. then became in new DJs we trust um but the reason I got in there was before John Peel passed away he had been playing some of my records mm. and his producer Hermit had reached out to me for like some sort of tips and pointers on like where what producers should John be looking for and what other records could you recommend and could you do a mix and got me to introduce John Peel to uh, the Renegade Boys who were like a grime outfit from West London to come in and do like a grime a live grime special on John Peel's radio show um, and then he passed away and when he passed away Hermit was like you know we were just picking up some momentum for this sound I feel like it's important and would you be up for doing a pilot? Because I know you're on the radio already. He'd heard, you know, he knew what I was about. I was on Rinse FM for years mm. at that point. So he knew I knew my way around a radio show. And he just, we recorded like an hour long pilot. And then, yeah, like literally two weeks later, they were like, we're going to create this show. Um, and we want to give you one of the slots on it. Like we love the pilot. So it's like me, I think like Eddie Halliwell and a bunch of other DJs, um, Tayo, there was like six DJs who rotated each week, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, that was going to go on for six months. So at the end of that six months, they would either renew or, or like get new DJs on. So I managed to like survive two rounds of the cull. Not bad, like. not bad. <laughs> um, yeah. And and then, yeah, the, at the end of it, it was just basically that they felt that, you know, the sound what was doing was great but there wasn't really an audience for like grime and dubstep at the time mm -hmm. they felt like you know like people like Marianne were, were doing enough of playing enough of it on her show to like represent it and and one extra um, represent it as well and they spoke to me about potentially doing um, some some stuff on one extra after but I wasn't as interested in that because I felt like one extra was a little bit too censored like I did some cover shows during my time on the BBC um, for one extra DJs when they went on holiday and stuff and there was so many rules about what you can and can't play on one mm. extra compared to Radio 1 I'm sure it's different now yeah. but at the time you know I think that um, there was some quite unusual ideas about what I should and shouldn't be playing on one extra like things like mm. you shouldn't play any songs with gunshot sounds in it on one extra <laughs> But it's okay to do it on the radio. <laughs> that is and bizarre. I, I it's probably the other way around now. It's like it, it was it was unnecessary censorship for this. Uh, you know, I think they felt like it was insinuating the wrong thing or sending the wrong message, which mm. is you look back at it now is just kind of like all kinds of backwards. But mm. it it is what it is. It was what it was. Um, I did actually enjoy my time at the BBC, and I still um, I'm still in touch with a lot of the people that I worked with on the shows there. And I think it, it was, it was a great business to work for. I think they, they, you know, they treated everyone that worked there well in my experience, mm. but, um, but yeah, in terms of what I felt I wanted to do on the radio, I decided it was better for me to go back to rinse and like pick up where I left off there. Mm. So that was, that was it. My time with the BBC came to an end. Then dubstep really exploded, and I feel like yeah. they should have hung yeah, up. Just like, yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think yeah. I think if, and then so after that, yeah, I think like after about after the next sort of six months passed, um, they decided they were going to make a specialist dubstep show. It got so big in that six months after I left <laughs> that 
um, it was big enough for them to offer <laughs> Scream and Benga a weekly like prime time slot on the Friday. Wow. So that that's how quickly things changed, really. Yeah. yeah. It warms my heart, I have to say, to hear that uh, John Peel was the guy who is still giving people their break right up to the very end. I mean, what a, what a dude yeah. he was. He always. He just instinctively knew where the next thing was coming from and, 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 and went out and found those people. So that's, that's a lovely thing to hear, I have to say. Nate, you talk a little bit about um, how this, all this music really came from Garage, as you, as you say, and your first tune that you've, uh, you've uh, selected is Dem2 Destiny. Tell us a little bit about this two-step classic, shall we say? Yeah, I think it was one of the first records that I bought in terms of like, when I was getting into Garage as like a listener before I wanted to de- become a DJ, this track really kind of stood out on this. It was like a mini disc. I used to work in a leisure centre um, as a lifeguard and we used to put mm. like music on on the poolside and a couple of the older lads there were like DJs or new DJs and would have like a mini disc of a mix. And I still remember it was the third track on this mini disc mix that someone brought in. There's multiple versions of this song um, the two-step edit is my favourite. There's a vocal version of that, which was on this mini disc. So whenever I hear that, it really takes me back to like working on poolside or like cleaning changing rooms for, uh, <laughs> into the early hours of the morning. There was something about that track that like just really resonated with me. So as soon as I started buying records, I, I needed a copy of that and took me a few trips to the record shop to get it because it was so popular. Uh, you know, if you didn't get into the shop within a few days of a new delivery of it coming in, you'd have to wait another week until yeah. the delivery came in again. And yeah, it kind of eluded me for about two months into my like record collection. Eventually got my hands on it. And it's still to this day one of my favourite two-step garage tracks. Uh, I just love the the syncopation on the drums. I think like Dem2, their productions are just so groovy like there's a real swing in everything they do to see but there's been a resurgence in like the two-step sound among uh, a whole new generation of young DJs that have maybe been stuck indoors during lockdowns and didn't really know what was the cool music to be into and it was really good that a lot of the promoters in those kind of university towns picked things up by the scruff of the neck and decided they were going to put all kinds of music through um, their channels to kind of like open the ears of a generation of young kids that are going out for the first time and this garage sound has just like resonated with them again. I think that, you know, we had dubstep, which was quite dark and heavy. And then we had like tech house, which was kind of like light and airy and bubbly. And then it got a little bit monotonous and the beats were like very much all, all the same. So mm. 
this sort of garage and brakes resurgence is happening now. It's something really nice when I was listening to the track earlier, I was just thinking, like a lot of the, the really great music, um, especially you know, when we talk about dance music, is that um, there's there's not a lot in that track, you know, there, there's space yeah. and uh, you know the, those syncopations, they, they work their magic because there's, there's not that much distracting you from it, you know, and so you get that swing and you get that feeling and because everything is kind of quite precisely put in the mix, obviously the, the bass and the way it sounds on a big system really pushes through and really turns it from something which might pass you by on a, on a small set of speakers into something that you just can't resist when it gets loud. Yeah, I th- I find that a lot of my favourite music is very much like that as well, with that like it gives you space to just kind of enjoy it instead of it being like an onslaught. And I think that was sometimes like for me, when even like going back to dubstep again, when it did kind of like hit that American audience and it got pushed like to like 11 on, on the dial, mm. it kind of lost a little bit of that, that time, you know, the, yeah. the, you know, the feeling, it lost the feeling a little bit for me and became a little bit of a, like a loudness war. And you know, listen to tracks like this, like destiny by them too, which takes me back to like what really got me in, interested in finding music that wasn't being played on like commercial radio stations when you look at uh, dubstep the, the early dubstep the stuff i really enjoyed it was it was it was drums and bass and maybe something over the top but there was very little else mm. it, it, the, the thing that became this kind of cartoon of dubstep is you know honking and shrieking and and fire alarms going off and all that but it's a million miles away from what you guys were doing at the start you know what you were doing was much closer like say to reggae and garage and and Mm. and this kind of it was it was almost chilled out but it had a darkness which was very much of the time i don't think uh, there was something about that period where everyone just wanted to turn the lights down low and, and look a bit moody on the night bus yeah yeah it definitely you know, like there's some, been some great writing about it down the years about how it kind of was representative of, you know, the grey uh, concrete structures of Croydon and stuff like that. And I think mm-hmm. that like, it's mad because if you ask any of us like what we were doing, we were just trying to make some garage to play out in our sets. But, uh, you know, there was no kind of like highbrow art essence to what we were doing in the sense that we were just like, we felt like the least artistic kids around, you know, we were almost like, most of the people who got into DJing were like the outcasts, the people who got kicked out of school, the people who like smoked on the back of the bus, you know, it was those characters. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the clean cut tech nerd kids that are like the first people to pick up a music production software now. So none of us really had initially this like really artistic outlook on what was influencing us to do the sort of music we were doing or approaching production as many of us would now with a much more artistic vision in our head that we just thought we were just trying to make, you know, get a beat that we could play in our DJ sets. It didn't really mean or make much sense to us to do things any other way than that. Mm. But some of the writing about the music in that time, when you read it or listen to the music now, it really makes more sense as we kind of like approach it with a little bit more of a well-travelled head on our shoulders. It's like, well, maybe it does make sense that we were making that music when we were surrounded mm. by, you know, this grey, uh, you know, concrete structures, this feeling of not being allowed in by the mm. garage scene because what we were making wasn't garage in their eyes. Um, so 
maybe it was a bit dark and a bit dread because that's how we felt or that was our surroundings or that was our upbringings in many cases mm. so yeah it's quite quite a it, quite good reading up on like what people what people perhaps perceived it to be um but you know like as time goes on and people do start to like approach it with a more artistic head then the music really starts to get interesting you know beyond those early days is when these the reggae influence comes in a bit more or someone comes in uh, from up north with a different kind of spin on things and Mm. Then you've got people like Koki coming in and they're like, what if we made a bass line literally eat itself throughout the track? <laughs> and it sounds insane. <laughs> and that was almost like the birth of everyone else going, wow, how did they do that? You know, from a production standpoint, that's when the sounds got really heavy and perhaps loud. Is that It started to attract an audience of young kids who were really into the idea of producing music but just didn't couldn't find a way in anywhere. And Dubstep offered this open door to them to like potentially be accepted by a scene and a movement and I think that everyone around the world and no matter what you do you want to feel like you belong to something or you have some kind of cause or purpose and here's a scene ready to welcome you with open arms if you know how to make beats right and Mm -hmm. I think that's where the sound just was very much open to be changed by anyone that came in with their own influences and their own ideas and you know, the with the birth of the internet kind of like the blow, blowing up at the same time as this sound was spreading, any kid that was trying to find their way in production was like willing to have a go. And if they managed to yeah. get one, one or two of the DJs that were like being listened to all over the world, play one or two of their tracks, they were in mm. and, and, and then they could run. I think um, I think like this is, it almost leads us directly into your second choice because... You, you talk about the the darkness and the sort of outsiderishness of the, of the whole scene, and and the fact that suddenly it had gone all over the world and people, you know, outsiders everywhere suddenly got the chance to do it, and people would suddenly come up with a new spin or on the on the beat or the sound, and your your second choice is Burial Archangel, and I can remember mm. when I first heard that. I mean, if you ever want to know what it's like traveling on a night bus when it's raining and you've been, you've been out till four in the morning, you want to play Archangel by Burial and just get that on the headphones. And that is the most London sound in the world to me. I just, but it came from, it felt like it came from nowhere and it, every, mm. everyone was just blown away by it. How did you come across it? I mean, I've been familiar with Burial's music from some of his earlier releases and Apparently, I've met him a bunch of times and didn't know who he was, and he didn't, you know, he didn't like to. to I think that's how he likes it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you know, he used to attend the same events that that we all did, and he used to talk to me on MySpace back in the day. Mm. And uh, oh yeah, so like, it was just, you know, his music was there, and it wasn't didn't ever really have the impact in the club. So like, when we were playing out at a lot of these events, most of the stuff that people were like drawing for was the stuff that was going to like really plow through that system and lich and make your chest rattle that was mm. what people were trying to play more of so um around the time this came out what well, must have been around 2007 i believe mm. uh yes 2007 mm. just looked it up um it's it was a time when you know dubstep was exploding into the kind of university halls and and the the room two of the drum and bass raves where, you know, people like it a bit harder 
They want to feel that bass. They want it to be hard. And then this album comes around and it's like, wow, this almost takes a spin on... You can hear the influences of what we were all doing in the very early days, things like Horsepower, LB, uh, Steve Gurley, all that kind of stuff. You can hear it in the drums, but there's like this haunting aura about the whole album and it's really quite gripping and I think that like it it hit me at a stage in my life I think I was um I just think that I was going through some stuff in my life around the time this came out and uh I was I was gonna I remember I was like coming up to my 25th um birthday and that summer I'd split up with my long-term girlfriend around this earlier that year and you know like things were starting to like go well for me but I was at that point in my life where it's like do I quit my job and do this full time yeah or am I not earn or am I never going to earn enough to do this full time it was a real like it was like a really gray area in my life where I was busy every weekend gigging but I wasn't putting away enough money to like get out of my parents house Mm. it's like how am I going to save for a mortgage you know, mortgage companies don't want to touch me. My earnings are the way they are. Um, you know, it was, it, there were so many problems and it caused a lot of stress for me. Mm. I think coming up to my 25th birthday was like, what are you doing with your life? Like, mm. this is all great, but you're never going to get out of your mum's house. I, I'd split up with my long-term girlfriend earlier that year. So it was like, there's no one in your life. You're like, you're not, you're not settling down anytime soon, but you're not earning enough money to keep this. This isn't sustainable. And then... This album was like what I was listening to at the time that all of these things were going on in my life. And it was almost like it soundtracked the way I felt a lot. Mm. And I don't know if that was the same for a lot of people my age at that time or if it was just me. But it just when I hear this album, I'm I'm back in my bedroom at my mum and dad's house. And some of the memories are not very nice, but I think it's important to like be open to feel that way again when you listen to music sometimes to like reflect on how you kind of came through that situation or how you kicked on from the way you felt and it helped me again like later in my life when those kind of feelings start to in again and I think like for me it's almost like a five-year cycle when I was going to turn 30 it was similar it was like it was less I understood it less because I didn't understand why I felt the way I did But through listening to like this album again around that time, it reminded me of like the way out of feeling the way that I did. Mm -hmm. And so listening to this track always, it will always be a track that sets me straight back there. But it's it's so, I don't know, it's so thought provoking for me. And I think like generationally, a lot of people that were into dubstep, grime, all that stuff, around that time I think this album just it was a moment
one of those albums like if you heard it you had to let other people know have you it mm. was such a talking voice like have you heard that mm. burial album have you heard it and even friends of mine who were never really that interested in my music I I would send them this burial album and be like you have to listen to this I know you're not into what I play but I think you'll like this and everyone I I showed it to connected with it 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 was such a strange amazing beautiful body of work and this Arch- Archangel track was a standout for me I always always remember I think I was on a stag do or something like that I was away and we were sat in like the restaurant area of like a premier inn and Pete Tong was on the radio we could hear it in the background and I'm listening and sort of like had it in the background chatting to my friends and then I hear the song coming in and I'm like is someone playing burial on their phone and then realising that it's actually Pete Tong playing it on the radio, mm. I was just like, wow, how has this reached Pete Tong? That's yeah. when I knew this album means so much more than what it meant to the small pockets of society that I was involved in. When Pete Tong's playing it on a Friday night, a song that sounds so sad and emotional in the middle of like your Friday night dance, like getting ready to go out on a weekend... Mm. And that's how transcendent I think this release really was. That just underlined it for me. Occasionally you get a record that just doesn't sound like anything else, but somehow manages to capture the Zeke guy so everyone can just buy into it in some form. I mean, I, I, whenever yeah. I hear it now still, I, I don't think anyone's done it again. Do you know what I mean? I've got a, a big stack of burial records. and you could say they kind of sound the same, but they've all got something. I think it's the emotion he gets into it. It, it is a, it is a deep brooding feeling that he manages to capture, and that's a very difficult thing to, especially with instrumental music. If you you know, if you're not yeah. playing a great piano solo or whatever, if you're actually doing a, you know the, a modern production wise thing, you're doing this with drums and bass and the odd sample here and there. To, to get that much emotion in the record is a very, very rare and difficult thing to do. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, it's, it, I, I just, I like you said, it's so difficult, like from a production standpoint, as someone who, you know, like tries to get that emotion out in some of my own music, it is really difficult. And I think that it's underrated in almost in that sense. Mm. Not that it, you know, could ever really look at it and say, well, that's an underrated album because it's been rated highly everywhere. Mm. But that point you make is overlooked a lot. But from a producer's standpoint, I think it's something that a lot of us would agree that with electronic music particularly, it's so hard to get that emotion out in what is often perceived as like dance record because it's electronic. This Mm. isn't a dance record. It's an electronic record but like a lot of the patterns and the structures are inherently dance music it's such an unusual concept but it works a beautiful thing Mm. a beautiful thing Uh, well let's uh, gear shift crunchily uh, (laughs) into your final choice which is a talk talk it's my life a great 80s band and uh, a, a wonderful song i mean this is obviously the other end of your record collection and the, and the things yeah. you're into that you were talking about earlier. So tell us a little bit about Talk Talk and why this one resonates. I think 
I, I've always just loved a lot of 80s records anyway and just like grew up in the 80s so you know you'd hear stuff like this on the radio all the time and out and about but not having that kind of thirst for knowledge especially musically growing up a lot of the music that I listened to in the 80s in like my youth was just background noise to me going out to play football every weekend and every day and every waking minute of the day I would spend obsessing playing football so I didn't have that interest in music as much until maybe I was like 16, 17 onwards. Um, I had some interest in music, but again, it wasn't like an interest where I had to go digging. It was like a handful of artists who I liked. People like Jamiroquai, I, I really liked as a teenager. Um, but again, like, you know, he was heavily rotated on on the national radio. So there was a lot of people that, that were probably into Jamiroquai. It wasn't like some profound band to be into mm. but as I got older and I think you know become a DJ and have like a newfound respect for a lot of the music I'm being exposed to and then I remember being in New York on tour and I had a night off and I was staying at the Standard in New York mm. uh, they've got a they've got a venue on, on the rooftop called Le Bain which is like this really bougie bar that's got like a diamond shaped swimming pool inside it uh, and I've gone up there just thought I'm gonna have a drink and I've gone in there on my own and I bumped into a couple of people I knew from New York in there just like on a night out and um DJ called Blue Gems is playing and he's playing all these 80s bangers and I was just like wow I, I love every record he's playing <laughs> but a lot of it was like stuff that I knew but I didn't know the name of and then he plays this extended mix of Talk Talk, It's My Life. And I'm like, oh, I remember this. I remember this song growing up. I just went on a digging spree through like loads of 80s mixes online, 80s records. And I thought, I'm going to go out and start buying all of the records that I loved when I was a kid. became obsessed with like listening to 80s DJ mixes and then like you know trawling YouTube for what was in the sidebar when I play this or that and then oh that's another track I know add that to my playlist download that when like when I get a chance buy the record if I see it and that went on for a couple years for me um, and I think like seeing Blue Gems play this record the way he did and what it did in the club I think a lot of people in that venue were like me it's like wow I haven't heard this song in years never thought I'd hear it here yeah. and he played it in such a way in the middle of this kind of like it was almost like a house leaning set but then occasionally we'd throw in like a little curveball and this was one of those and it just made me I was like I want to have a go at mixing this stuff now mm. I'm going to go get it all the beauty of that, a lot of that music is it's not rare you can get it in most secondhand record shops right? so I mm. spend weekends going through crates and crates of 80s disco funk soul records and it 
was the first time in years that I actually went record shopping because everything was kind of digital by then. So I'd say like around, this would have been around 2010, 11. And that went on for a few years and then I started playing it on rinse at Christmas time. <laughs> and off the back of that, started getting booked at disco events in London, played a disco set at festival. And then there was more and more requests to my agent to play a disco set, play an 80s set, play this, play that. And that's been going on now ever since, pretty much, since like 2014. I'd say like actually probably busier now playing that kind of music in clubs than I am playing regular music or like what people might expect me to play. That It's so interesting, isn't it, how hearing a certain track in a different context or played by a certain DJ can just make you look at it entirely differently. And also the fact... It's really cool that you were on this journey of discovery as you were beginning to play this music as a DJ. Yeah. So like, even though it's older music, it was as exciting to you as discovering something entirely new. Yeah, I think it was, like, it was almost like rediscovery because a lot mm. of those tracks that I was finding in this initial stage was stuff that most people probably know. Sure. Like if I look back at that now, I'd be like, oh, everyone, everyone knows that song. Yeah. But I was like, I knew the song, but I didn't know what it was called and I forgot what the band was called or yeah. because it was just background noise as I was like up to the age of about 16. I, my musical interest or like my thirst for knowledge around music was just so little that... And the, we didn't have the internet. You couldn't just like find all those songs you wanted you know yeah. i can still remember the first mp3 i downloaded was a garage track so i would have been about i think i probably would have been about 16 17 um it was the boys mine for mm. bm dubs or architects remix it was like mm. a garage version of a r&b record yeah and remember the that took about took about half an hour to download it i remember, <laughs> I remember those days too my so god long. i find violent. it fascinating as well when people who ended up having a career in music are like yeah i wasn't really interested in music as a kid that's so yeah. rare yeah. it's yeah. so interesting when you meet people who've had that experience I, this is it and i think that like, i never i would even when i did get into music i never thought i would if you told me i was gonna be like hitting my 40th birthday and I'd, this would still be like the bulk of my income is like music or, you know, well, all of my income, everything I do, even outside of production, label, DJing, everything else I do is still related to music in some mm. way, right? And that was never my intention. I never got into DJing with the intention of making it a career. And I think that is because I could not see a way of making that a career that people mm. can see now. And I think that a lot of people that get into like music production or you know, they have a path set. They can see the way to getting a release out, getting their music on Spotify, getting in a playlist, getting on the radio, getting a show. You can, you can see a path for that. And that path was never clear to me. It was never obvious. And it was also like almost, it felt, it felt unobtainable. Mm. So even when I started getting into music, I never, ever thought this is something I could really get into and this could become a passion. I just thought, you know, it'd be cool to buy some of those records I hear. <laughs> then it was, oh, it'd be cool to learn how to DJ some of these. It'd be cool to be like that DJ. Then it was, be cool to get some gigs. Then it was, be cool to get sent some records. And then it was, be cool to be on the radio. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and once I got on the radio, I thought that was it. I was like, well, this is cool. This mm. is a nice hobby. Never in my life would have thought I'd get to tour the world playing any of this music. It's amazing that it, all of it took off the way it did. And I was just quite fortunate to be into what I was into in the times and stages of my life, I think. What's really nice and is really nice to 
dig back beyond now, you know, having access to all these records and this information of music that goes way beyond my ears. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's quite a pleasure almost to like, maybe have a disco gig coming up and it's like, right, I need to try and find something that maybe all the other DJs on the lineup haven't heard yeah. or don't know. Yeah, yeah. As a DJ, all you want is another DJ to go, what's this record? <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. Yeah. laughs> there's yeah. two things now. There's, there's that, you want, you want the other DJ to do that, and then you want someone to try and Shazam you and the Shazam yeah. to fail. If the Shazam <laughs> fails, you know you're winning. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And I, I love that is, that's very true as well. When I'm digging for like disco records, if I find something on YouTube that's got hardly any views and mm. I think that like, this is a gem that no one knows. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, but same. it's a disco record. Of course people know it. And then I'll Shazam it. And if they don't find it, I'm like, yes. It is. <laughs> absolutely, like, exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. You're, and the joy of it is, like, no matter how long you search for records like that, you'll always find one. There seems to be an unlimited amount of those yeah, little gems yeah. out there. to be just, And who knows how many of that. I always think, like, there must be so much stuff that was only released on vinyl or even cassette that hasn't exactly. made it to the internet yet mm. or on any other format. And like, oh man, who knows what's out there yet to be discovered. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a disco track I found a few years back. I was listening to, um, there's, there's a, a Facebook group called the San Francisco Disco Preservation Society, which mm -hmm. is a bit of a mouthful, but it is like an archive of recordings from actual DJ gigs in San Francisco wow. and oh, the areas like, dating back to the 70s like people have like recorded that cassette tapes back to digital and wow. like remastered them and you can really it's really good for listening what the DJs were playing because it's not just like the stuff we get fed by Spotify playlist or something like that yeah. it's like this is what was actually being played in the club and I remember listening to um, a mix and there was this incredible like orchestral disco record with this enormous like two three minute breakdown in the middle of it I was like what is this? And Shazam did, didn't know what it was. I sent it to everyone I knew that was into disco. I was like, what is this record? What is this part of this mix? And mm. no one could tell me what it was. And then I eventually found out it was a track by Madeleine Kane called um, Boogie Talk. Mm. And I was, in, I was in America on tour and I had the afternoon off in Chicago. There was a small record shop there. I went in. And this record shop was mostly like rock, rock music. But they did have this tiny little disco section, like one rack, probably about 100 records, hmm. maybe less. And at the front of it is like the discount section. And I see Madeleine Kane album. I'm like, $2. I looked at the back of it and Boogie Talks on it. I was like, yeah, get wow. In. $2. You know someone's and looking out for you when something like that happens. And we've all Mind put that on our wants list now as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> give it a listen it is an, um, the breakdown in that record is unbelievable it is like such a good track brilliant well I tell you what uh, we're all very glad that you did find this music thing because you brought loads of brilliant records into our lives and uh, done so much for the scene in general that, that you've been involved in so I'm really glad you did find that love for music and I hope it continues for many years and thank you ever so much for coming and talking to What Goes Around today thank you so much for having me on it's been a pleasure Lovely. It's been a real and thank you. Yeah, I can, I'm going to go and Google that Madeleine Kane track now. Yes, yes. <laughs> As is get on that. Yeah. <laughs> it won't be your hidden gem anymore. <laughs> it's it's yeah, ours now. <laughs> you have. That's the thing. You won't be on those cover-up merchants with a little white label over yeah, the top. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks so much, Chris. It's been brilliant talking to you. Yeah. Great chatting, guys. Thank you so much. Speak Cheers. Bye bye. Bye. Cheers. 
Well, we really sincerely, deeply and truly hope you enjoyed that episode. We really deeply, sincerely do. But even more deeply and sincerely and really, we want you to spread the word. Tell everyone about What Goes Around podcast. Write us a review on Apple. For God's sake, we're about 49 reviews. We just need 50. Give us another one, you bastards. I don't want to sound desperate, but we've been doing this for nearly three years. Come on, lads. <laughs> like, subscribe. Subscribe.